Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 139, recorded September 12th, 2013. So today's our 74th 90s episode and we're almost to the end of Malibu's run of Deep Space Nine. So we do 25 through 27 today. Ah, yes. Well, these particular stories are mm, interesting. I've definitely read better, but um, maybe this is an indication why that didn't have a longer run. <laughs> At least 26 and 27. Anyway. Right. Yeah, the, the odd thing is is that uh, Malibu was its own company. And then, um, as you could probably tell through the, the advertisements, uh, they got... They, Tons they, of Marvel comic ads. They were bought out by Marvel. And so Marvel tried to merge their universe, their Marvel universe, with the uh, Malibu universe. And then eventually they just gave up and... Uh, pretty much Malibu went away and everything moved over to, to Marvel or what they did move over. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. So so, so was it an anti-competitive thing, trying to get rid of a competitor in the end? Or did they really think they could merge them? I the really think The that different they, comic series. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they just, maybe they wanted the talent and they wanted the, um, you know, they didn't really have any titles that they wanted. So I really think they tried to they wanted two successful universes that they could play around with, you know, and have you know crossovers with. Right. Uh, but it didn't quite work out. I mean, DC's done the same thing. They bought out um, a company called Wildstorm, and then you know, after a few years, it just becomes merged in with the DC universe. So, right. Both companies have have done it multiple times in the past. So they just better not touch IDW. <laughs> well, the funny thing about IDW is that it has no um, or or very few properties that are, you know, their own. Their own. Yeah. So they do a lot of uh, franchises licensing, I guess. Right. Which you know, Dark Horse Comics—that's how they got started um, back in the '90s. Um, th- that's that's kind of what th- what made them big, and then now they have. Hellboy and um, you know R.I.P.D. and other type of you know mm-hmm. franchises that are their own. Right. Uh, the Mask was a French was was Dark Horse and uh, Barbed Wire and and you know they they've had their own success, whereas I.D.W. so far has pretty much stuck with the licensing of other properties. Right. But done a very but, good job. Oh yeah, and, and they they I think they do a good job of trying to do a lot of crossovers, you know, with the infection uh, crossovers they've had where... Star Trek. Yeah, well, different ones. Star, with... Tre- Star Trek was in the first one, right. and then they had Infection Ghostbusters. 2. Right. But Star Trek wasn't part of Infection 2, and then they just finished off Mars Attacks. So it was like Mars Attacks, you know, and then whatever the property was, like Ghostbusters, Transformers, Popeye, you know, they... <laughs> <laughs> Really? But, again, Star Trek was not included in that crossover. Right. 
So, so anyways, at least they do. They try to do something unique instead of just strictly, you know, each universe is in its own title, and we don't ever cross-populate. Right. Cross-pollinate. That's what I meant to say. Anyways, so yeah, we're on. Malibu's about to end, and I guess Malibu, the only successful uh, franchise that they own uh, or that they had before, was um, Men in Black. Oh, I didn't know that. They were yeah. Men in Black. I did not know that. Hmm. Yeah, so Men in Black was uh, there was two miniseries, Men in Black miniseries before the movie came out, um, and then around, which is around the time that we're talking about now, the movie's about to come out. Um, as far as you know, publishing goes from where we're at, 1995, and uh, when that happens, that's when when Marvel buys them out completely. Hmm. So if you watch if you watch the first Men in Black movie, it says based on the Malibu comics, mm-hmm. and then when you watch the second Mar- uh, Men in Black movie, it says Marvel comics. Hmm. Hmm. And ironically enough, the third one said Malibu again, so I don't know why they switched it back. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe because they the third one was so good, they wanted to push the blame back on Malibu. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, but today but, we've got three Malibu comics right. that we will be talking about. Right. So the first one, forty-eight page, spectacular. <laughs> it, and it was spectacular too. Yes, it's a good, good chock full one. And uh, and the cover, I like the cover on this one, a lot. Well, why don't we just uh, you go ahead and give us the synopsis, and then we'll talk about the whole thing. I'm going to do that. All right. So uh, this is definitely Deep Space Nine comic from Malibu. This is issue number 25. Title is Gods of War. This is a continuation from uh, several parts that uh, we had covered in an earlier episode. This uh, published date is July 1995. The creative team includes writer, who is Dan Mishkin, penciler Leonard Kirk, Inker is John Montgomery, letterer Ronnie Cruz, color design Mike Heileman, interior computer color is by Malibu, associate editor Dan Shaheen, editor is Mark Panacea. Kira looks totally kick butt on the issue cover. She is on a planetary surface, screaming a victorious warrior's howl while holding her sword over her head. She has a metal shield on her left arm and metal armor on her arms, shoulders, lower legs, and feet. Ten vanquished Cardassian bodies are strewn at the Major's feet. Kira came, she saw, she conquered. The issue opens at DS9. Multiple Cardassian warships are in defensive positions around the station. Kira hates it, but Sisko says that the Defiant, being the only Federation ship in this sector, will not be enough to protect DS9 when the Aresians come calling, and they do know that they will come to attack. Ultimately, the temporary defensive alliance against the warmongering Aresians benefits both Bajor and the Cardassians. Besides, it's already agreed that he is in ultimate command of the defense forces. Meanwhile, Odo is talking to Crockett, who is cooling his heels in jail again. Gul Dukat comes by to free Crockett based on the fact that he was tried and found guilty of crimes against Cardassia, but will be released on condition of Crockett's full cooperation in the coming fight. 
Crockett makes a smart comment to Odo and walks free. Later, aboard the Defiant, Sisko gives O'Brien the order to release Clamps, and with Crockett and Gull Dukat aboard, they head for the wormhole. A Cardassian warship also accompanies them. Soon after they emerge into the Gamma Quadrant, they detect three Rian ships. Sisko wants to talk to them first, but is ready for a fight. Crockett says they could potentially destroy the Eresian ships, but they would just send three more ships against them and keep doing it until they ran out of ships. Crockett explains that Eresians do most important things in threes to correspond to their three war gods. Sisko hails them and speaks to the Eresian leader of their triad attack force. The conversation is cut short when the Eresian leader simply calls Sisko the enemy and starts attacking. The Cardassian ship and the Defiant fight back and appear to be winning, but one of the Eresian ships is able to use an unfamiliar weapon that causes the Cardassian ship's shields to drop. Knowing that the shields will be dropping, the two fully functional Eresian ships launch multiple torpedoes at the soon-to-be defenseless Cardassian ship. The Cardassian ships cannot avoid all the torpedoes and is blown to bits. The Defiant comes around and takes out another of the Resian ships with its awesome massed fire, phaser fire. Crockett says only one Eresian ship is still in fighting condition, but the other one that appeared to be crippled takes a successful shot at the Defiant. The other Eresian ship turns towards the Defiant and appears to be ready to make a run on them. Crockett suggests that this is a good time to depart, since they will not pursue the Defiant if they have only one ship. They will leave it to the next set of three attack ships to proceed to the Alpha Quadrant. Sisko takes the suggestion to heart and retreats while engaging their cloaking device. Later on DS9, Kira, Dax, and Odo are in ops receiving Sisko's update as to the loss of the Cardassian ship. Sisko says they will remain there cloaked and mull over their options. They do not expect the next attack for a while. He tells Kira to inform the Cardassians and Bajor. Kira tells Dax to forward the message and take care of things while she is gone. Kira arrives at Quark's and orders a Warp 11. Quark attempts to engage the Major in conversation, but is rebuffed by her telling him he would not understand what is on her mind. Quark ventures a guess that Kira is still upset how Crockett used her to get the orb. The look on her face tells Quark he hit pretty close to the mark, but Kira says it's more than just that. She saw how the Eresians took the, me the message of the prophets delivered via the orbs and twisted it to justify any action of aggression and violence that they felt like. She is wondering whether she did the exact same thing herself during the occupation. Justified any act of violence against the Cardassians as the will of the prophets. Kira says she thought all the killing was justified and that someday she would be able to put it all behind her and live a peaceful life. So far, she has not found that peaceful life, and probably never will. She says she probably could not find the answers she has been seeking, even if she spoke to the prophets themselves. 
She says she does not know why she is telling Quark all this. Quark sagely tells her if she wants to talk to the prophets, she should try to use the orb they took back from the Eresians. It's still on the station. Kira looks at Quark in disbelief as she realizes he's right. Meanwhile, on the now visible Defiant, O'Brien says what the Eresians did to Gull Param's ship looked like a field inversion which caused the shields to collapse. Dukat says field inversion is what a Cardassian scientist called a weapon they developed that caused shields to drop, but they could only get it to work on their own technology, their own ships. How could they have gotten that tech? The Gull realizes it was probably through Crockett. Who else? Crockett admits he sold it to the Eresians. He knew that information would come in handy one day. And when he seduced the daughter of a powerful legate to get it, he knew he was in good shape. The Gull pulls his pistol to kill Crockett and does it. He turns Crockett into a puff of disintegrated smoke. Sisko tells the Gull he should have waited to do such a thing. Crockett has information about the Eresians that they need. O'Brien reports three new Eresian ships around their tails. They wish the battle damage the Defiant sustained did not force them to drop the cloak. Meanwhile on the station, Kira goes to the Orb of the Prophets and sees a vision. She is in light metal armor with a sword. She is in the middle of a pitched battle with Cardassians and starts to kick butt herself. Then she starts to fight an Eresian and kicks their butts too. She enters what appears to be a Bajoran temple and is about to fight a lone Eresian when Kai Opaka comes onto the scene. The Eresian warrior gets down on one knee to the Kai. The Kai moves to Kira and holds her by the back of the ears. Kira snaps back to the room on DS9 as Kai Wynn closes the orb. Dax urgently calls Kira back to Ops as the, as the Defiant comes through with three Eresian ships on their tail. The Defiant comes around and blasts one of the three Eresian ships to bits as the other two turn towards Bajor. Sisko orders a pursuit course, saying Bajor is defenseless, so they have to get those two ships. Gul Dukat tells Sisko not to worry as two massive Cardassian warships move in and take out the two Eresian ships handily. The Gull says the Cardassian people made commitments to the defense of the sector, and the loss of one ship does not change that. Sisko says he is happy to hear it, but the Eresians will just keep sending ships. The Gull says in that case they will continue to destroy them as they exit the wormhole for as long as it takes. Sisko is not happy with that approach and says he wants to find a solution with a lower cost in Eresian lives. Just as he says that, three more Eresian ships come through the wormhole, but this time the third ship is absolutely massive. It dwarfs the other two ships. After they get over their initial shock, Sisko ventures the theory that the new huge ship is a very powerful warlord ship. Sisko tries to contact the huge ship, but they get no response. Standing with Kai Wynn, Kira hails the Defiant, telling Sisko 
They may have a solution if they can deliver a message to the enemy. The Eurasians are attacking and not replying, so Cisco has to has his doubts about Kira being able to deliver a message. Kira tells him what the message is, and Cisco decides to deliver the message himself. The Gull thinks he is crazy, but Cisco, Kira, and Kai Win all beam over to the Warlord's bridge. At first, the Warlord's minions are ready to kill them all, but he listens, as Kira explains that they want the Eurasians to take back the orb they brought with them. Whether you call them war gods or the prophets, the orbs have a message for everyone, so why should the Eurasians not hear it too? Kira goes on to tell them what the war god's message was to her. She led a very violent life so far, but she should find a way to a peaceful life. The warlords accepts the orb, but asks how many more does Bajor possess that the Eurasian people could also listen to. Sisko tells him not to get carried away, and let's take this one step at a time. The warlord settles for the single orb, and flies his ships back through the wormhole. The gull says Sisko's leniency this day will come back to haunt him someday. Kira even looks on the bright side, and she says she sees hope in the fact that the Cardassians, Federation, and Bajor all work together on this solution. That is a step in the right direction. The Gull called it self-interest to defend their spheres of influence, but Sisko calls it a beginning. The end. A beginning. It's the beginning at the end of a long story with lots of back and forth. It was a tad long. It was long. It was long. Yeah. And uh, and and my biggest problem with it is some of the messages Kira is trying to get across and and the things she experiences, the whole fight and stuff, uh, you know, uh, on the battlefield with the armor on and everything and it's just kind of muddled in my mind. Right. Yeah, I was I was glad she explained it later because when she wakes up and acts like she knows what to do, I was very confused. I was like, I must have missed something. <laughs> <laughs> but even when she explains it, it's, it's kind of a stretch. Well, that she's been fighting her whole life just like they do. So, and she's always used the prophets for justification. Yes, I get it. I mean. I, I, I kind of get that, but but then she doesn't have a peaceful life. I mean, if she really wants a peaceful life, she should go back to Bajor and uh, live a peaceful life. She's not going to get a, a peaceful life on DS9, being the uh, second-in-command. Right. Yep. But, well, whatever. So I guess the big thing is um, the message is in the eye or ear of the beholder, I guess. <laughs> Although, quite frankly, again, this whole scene where she's getting the message from the um, from the orb that the Eurasians had had their hands on, and it was telling them to go, hey, go to war, hey, kill everybody, you know, aggression, aggression, aggression. And what did she hear? I mean, her experience was about as violent and aggressive as we've ever seen from an orb. So, right. on the one hand, they're saying 
you hear kind of what you want to hear from the orbs, but then again, hasn't Kira experienced an orb before? Right. I think she has, and she hasn't had an experience like this. So it's like, there's something whacked about those orbs. Well, it's different orbs provide different types of visions, and uh, I mean, this one... This one is a uh, war orb, right? But this, I, so did the Aresians ever hold this one? Because this is the one that Crockett stole from that monastery uh, in the first first issue of this series, right? Um, and then in the next issue, he still he just, had it. He still has it. So, yeah. and we were confused then. Did he did he give it to him and then steal it back, or did he never give it to him? So. Yeah, and quite frankly, he must have not, he must have not gotten to the point of giving it to him yet, right? Even though that's the only way he's going to get his money, right? I mean, right? The guy was a profit; he was a walking free enterprise profit motive guy, right? So made no sense why he helped. Why us. did exactly? I mean, why didn't he get his his money right away? Uh, you know, yeah, rather than right. holding on to it, I don't know because I don't think the Eurasians are very patient people, and you would think that they would have just killed him if yeah. he if he tried to bargain to get more money or whatever. Yeah. And all I can say is they didn't know he had it. Then why would they have let him land? Because they were very adamant well, that no humans non-Aresians show up on their planet. Well, they know him. Apparently. I mean, since he sold them the ability to uh, invert the Kardashian shields and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, he's he's been in contact with them uh you know, for some amount of time. And right. he was, I mean, this getting this orb to sell to the Eurasians was all part of his plan, right? You would so, think so, yeah. So that's why they probably let him come into orbit and hang out. But if they would have known that he had the orb this time, um, probably not. But at the very least, because of the fact he sold him technology to be able to drop his enemy's shields, that, that, sh- that has some value for some uh, some guys like that. Right. Anyways, that was a, a previous is, or issue. So, in regards to this one, I think that it was showing her that you know she she's fought her whole life and she can fight them. You know, she could fight her whole life. That was the Cardassians, and she can continue to fight, which was showing her fighting the Eurasians. But maybe uh, you know that last shot where instead of fighting that Eurasian, then bows to Kyo Kappa. And then she kind of realizes that maybe, maybe that peace is the, the way. way. Exactly, Jenks. <laughs> that's the that's the only explanation I can come up with. Yeah. Um, what what and she, so, what we see and what she says later. Right. So because peace is the way, and because we don't want to get our butts kicked ultimately by these guys that are nuts, we're going to give them the orb. Right. So they give them the orb. And they're hoping maybe they'll hear the same message that Kira did. Good luck. These guys are like homicidal maniacs, these Eurasians. They are angry men. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They're very angry men. There's more than 12 of them. Yes, they're very, uh, very angry. Yeah, I did like how he just says, uh, so tell me how many more of these you have so we can come back in. (laughs) Because <laughs> exactly. that's, that's all they're really doing. They're delaying it. They solved nothing. Well, completely. And they said they were going to go back and get, at the end of the other issues, uh, the Eurasians were saying, hey, we're going to go and get them. 
We're going to get them all. Right. So what, what changed their mind? Oh, just because Kira said a few words and gave them one? You know, when they're at DS9's doorstep? It's like, right. I thought you were going for all of them. So what changed your mind, big guy? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then they even make him try to sound like he's, you know, conceding to his, you know, because his, his second in command is telling him, you know, it, even even the dead who fight for glory get glory in the afterlife, and even even failure is is rewarded, and and he's just like, man, I'll just take the gift, yeah. and that's supposed to mean some sort of long term change. It just I mean. I Some indication of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I doubt it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it either. Kind of muddled. Okay, so the part I like best, I mentioned to you before we started recording, is when uh, Gul Dukat just kills Crockett, just blasts him. Doesn't even hesitate. <laughs> it, it was a shock. Yeah, I, that was the coolest part because I was not expecting it to happen. Yeah, I was surprised because he's just sitting there all smug in one panel, and then you turn the page and he's he's vapor. Yeah, exactly. It, it's fast, which is kind of about time because the guy's obviously a sleazeball. Yeah, a sleaze. Even though he is kind of helping a little bit, he's still a sleazeball. Right. Unlike Quark, who's a sleazeball, but he's a lovable sleazeball. This guy. Yeah, and and sleaze. they exactly, and they need Quark around for comic relief. But Crockett, nah, we can get rid of you. And they do. And they do. So that was cool. I like that. So. So what'd you think of the artwork overall? Um, I like the I like I said before. I like the cover. The cover's real good. Cover's beautiful. Um, I think, I think, I think I like the artwork in general. It's pretty good. Um, Cisco doesn't quite look right. Right. Um, and there are parts where Kira doesn't really quite look right either but you can pretty much tell who everybody is and Kira often I thought looked like a young boy or ah. a, a, a teenager right I don't know if it was just the hair or 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 what right just... and then O'Brien was the one that I had a hard time with mm. oftentimes he just did not look like a Cole Meany at all no I agree and then, uh, and then, if you look at page eight real quick, uh, uh, they Cisco's giving O'Brien an order, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, they drew and colored O'Brien with his eyes closed. Yeah, was he in the middle of a blink? What's the deal? I don't know. It's like he's fighting these uh, these ships with his eyes closed. <laughs> <laughs> I am a leaf on the wind. Hey. Yeah, and by the way, why? Is he piloting the ship? I mean, isn't he an engineer? Yeah. And I'm not saying that an engineer can't fly a ship. It's just... Wouldn't you think they'd have some pilots? You and wouldn't you, so. wouldn't you think one of the most important guys at DS9 that keeps the place running? Wouldn't you think you'd keep him back at the ranch? Well, O'Brien's a... You know, he's a jack-of-all-trades. I, I, I know In the first that. season, he was the... He was the pilot of the Enterprise, and then he got promoted to transporter chief, and then, and then he ended chief up engineer. on Space Nine. That's chief engineer. That's right. right. So, I mean, so it, it, I'm not I'm not saying he can't fly. <laughs> and actually, we've had it before where we had the Dax and uh, O'Brien show. 
where they go out and runabouts and do amazing things. Right. So I'm not saying you can't. Deflecting radioactive comets. Exactly. (laughs) Heaven help me. Um, It just just didn't seem... And it was actually a good thing that that he was there to explain the uh, Cardassian shield inversion. Mm -hmm. But it's like it just didn't make any sense to me. No. Why O'Brien was the pilot. But whatever. Nope. It, that didn't bother me because I've seen him pilot the Defiant in the show, so yeah, and, and they again, don't really—they don't really even have a pilot, which is like, you guys need a pilot. What is this? I don't know. Yeah, they could have had a new cast member on the show. I think there was room. I think there was room, but I—I I, I guess when you spend a lot of your episodes on a station, a pilot doesn't have a lot to do. Right. You know, maybe that's why. But anyway. So anyways, as, well, as far as the artwork, um, aside from um, Kira looking like a boy sometimes and... And the faces uh, not being quite right on multiple right. characters. But right. I thought that the uh, space battles were mm-hmm. really nice. Um, yep. And, and I really like... a really nice color. Yeah, they, and I really like... do a nice job with color. Oh, yeah. Overall, the color is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just this is in regards to the spaceships. I, I, I still like the... Aresian's spacecraft, the the big ship and their little fighter crafts. I think they right. look cool. Yeah, they're unique. And they got big balls. Don't Good know point. what they don't know what they do, but they got big balls on the wings, and they look cool. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Those red things. Yeah. Right. They do something. Big red, big red. Yes, balls. <laughs> You could call them something else too, but I won't. Spheres. Go into that. All right, we'll call them big red spheres. <sighs> big red golden bozos. Yes. All right. So, uh, yeah, I think the artwork was pretty good on non-living uh, things. Also. Oh, right. yep. And the Eurasians, kind of a unique design. Race. Yeah, but I like it. I mean, they got really long arms. Mm-hmm. So, and I like their fingers. <laughs> yeah, what, three fingers? Or a thumb and two fingers? Something like that? Is right. that what they got? Yeah. Um, and their faces are kind of weird. Um, kind of look like, like parts of a baked potato that hasn't been peeled yet, kind of shoved together <laughs> to form a face. A baked potato. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're brown and they're they kind of they're kind of lumpy. lumpy. <laughs> All right, I can see that. <laughs> With red eyes and very bushy eyebrows, they look almost Russian. Anyway. All right, what else you got? Because that was I, that that's was really it. about it. They <laughs> <laughs> really, you know, it, it it was all this big march to war, and again. At the end, it's like, uh, we're just going to decide to go home now. Right. Well, we got one orb. Okay. So you think if Kira drank that warp 11, she would become a salamander? (laughs) No, but I understand why you're saying that. (laughs) You do understand or don't? I do understand why you're saying that. Okay, good. Because you can't go past warp 10 or something, right? Exactly. Or you become uh, what Captain Janeway became, or whoever. Yeah, Trav- um, Paris. Her, 
Paris too. Yeah, yep. the big, the big salamander. Yeah, I think that episode's called Threshold. Yes, and that's really, boy, they were pushing things with that. Man, that was good. That isn't what I right. call it. <laughs> that isn't what I'd call it. Uh, All right. Well, you ready to move on to twenty six? Please, let's do that because we got a new story. Yes, a two, in fact, because two, this, two, two. This issue, for no real reason, has part one of one story, and then about halfway through, it's to be continued, and it has part one of another story that'll be continued in exactly. uh, twenty-seven. So, exactly. and that second story features a descendant of one of your favorite Taz characters. Oh, I was so excited! It's right there <laughs> on the cover. Exactly. Alright, so this issue came out in July of 1995. Uh, the first story is called Genesis Denied, Part 1. And its uh, writer was Chris Dowes and Colin Clayton. Penciler is Rob Davis. Inker is Jack Snyder. Letterer is Michael Delipine. Color design is Moose Bauman. Interior color seps is Violet Hughes with Janice Weismer and line editor is Mark Pansia. So the cover starting at the bottom, we're going to go up here. So the bottom fourth of the cover shows a unconscious Cardassian male laying down on a medical bed. And then above him, the uh, middle two-fourths of the page shows the the following, and I'm going to start from left to right. So on the far left, shows a huge green sphere, kind of like a green Death Star, firing at a Cardassian ship. And then a little bit to the right, we see Dr. Bashir standing, looking down at his tricorder. And then we scoot over a little bit more, and we see a black blob of some sort uh, that seems to be glowing or emitting some sort of blue smoke. So the story starts off with Cisco running into Ops to be informed that a Cardassian vessel has appeared and seems to be running from something. The Cardassian ship is taking damage from an unseen enemy. And actually explodes. An escape pod is launched from the wreckage, and it finds its way to the station. The Cardassians inside are led by a man named Gol Akka. And he is saying that he's actually soon to become Grand Gol Akka. A large green vessel then appears. And when I say large, this thing is huge because it actually dwarfs Deep Space Nine. So Deep Space Nine looks like a little baby ship compared to this thing. Uh, Gol Akka makes his way to the bridge, or actually Gol Akka makes his way to the ops, and he starts barking orders to fire at the mystery vessel. Cisco puts him in his place and even has to confine him to his ready room. Cisco then opens a communication with the ship, and we are introduced to a new alien species, the Vordhat. These guys are large creatures. Uh, they're humanoid in shape, but their body seems to be some sort of black exoskeleton, which we later learn is some sort of uh, containment suit. Um, so they, they're human proportioned except 
for their heads, which seem to be flat and completely devoid of features, except for some glowing um, eyes that appear when they're when they're talking. Uh, I think we'll talk about it later. Uh, this uh, this alien uh, he introduces himself as the temporary commander, and he states that uh, they were recently attacked by Gull Aka. In the attack, their commander took damage, and he's about to die due to his containment suit not being removed, and they have no way of removing it. So they ask for the healer of Deep Space Nine to help them. And uh, they actually seem to know a lot about Deep Space Nine and the personnel on board. Cisco volunteers to help in any way he can, and they close communications as both sides prepare for the visit. Cisco informs Akka, who is none too pleased. Uh, around this same time, two new Cardassian vessels uh, have shown up near the station. Uh, they've held off attacking because they're not wanting to harm Akka. And it's actually said that they're part of some sort of honor guard for the upcoming grand goal. So Sisko orders Odo to take Akka to the brig, along with the other Cardassians that are there on the ship, or on the station. So at the same time, Bashir is heading to the infirmary, and he's greeted by Jake. And Jake is informed of the upcoming event, and he wants to be there firsthand. So he heads to the airlock to watch the aliens arrive. Meanwhile, the Cardassians overpower the security guard that was taking them to the brig. And once they overpower the security guard, they grab some phasers and they also head towards the airlock. So as the aliens are entering the station and heading towards the infirmary with their commander on a bio sled of some sort, the Cardassians, Jake, and these aliens all meet up at the same time in the corridor. Akka orders his men to fire. To be continued. Jake! Jake! Wrong place at the wrong time, big dude. Yeah, I really didn't understand why he was running to the airlock. I thought he wanted to run to the infirmary to watch Bashir do his magic. That's what I thought. But then he he's with Bashir, and the Bashir walks off, and then we see Jake running, but he's nowhere near Bashir anymore. So I was I was a little confused at at first on that part. Yeah. But I guess he just wanted to see him coming into the station, not necessarily being operated on. Well, yeah, it was a handy, if kind of forced, um, pawn. Right. A little, a little innocent fawn put in the uh, in the way of, of two hunters. Um, I thought it was rather contrived, but yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so... I was a little surprised that the goal was able to get free so easily from the the security guard and steal phasers. That because I mean, when they show up, every Cardassian has a phaser, and there's what six or seven of them. Yeah. So those are some really inept security guards. You aren't kidding. And mind you, as soon as you see them walking in the hall. And there's a lot of security guards, but there's also a lot of Cardassians. I mean, the first thing I was thinking to myself is, hmm, you better watch out <laughs> if any of those guys are behind you. Because, uh... And sure enough, they overpower them. 
They do. They do. So this is my fa- so by far my favorite part of the whole issue is I'll tell you. When the green <laughs> watermelon Hulk ship pulls up to Deep Space Nine. Right. And then goes uh Green ship smash punny little DS9. <laughs> so the first thing I thought was Hulk ship. It's a Hulk ship. Look at it. And then I then the second thing I thought was the watermelon thing. Yeah. Because it is green and it's kind of watermelon kind of shape. oval and watermelon yeah. shaped. Um, but definitely Hulk. Thing's huge. I didn't even think of Hulk. All, all I oh. could all I could think of is how massive that ship must be because it makes. Deep Space Nine look tiny. Exactly. And it's cool it's that big and everything, but what is the purpose of that? Yeah, I don't know. How, what, their ship? Yeah. I mean, it... Cruise around and chase Cardassians? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's a massive ship. I mean, you know how many people are on Deep Space Nine. Right. Um, And even the Enterprise D is a big ship, but... It's it's smaller than DS9. So this thing is just cruising around. Now, if you needed to transport, like, the entire uh, population of a continent or something, that looks like the right size. But if you're doing just about anything else, it looks like overkill. Right. And you have a ship that big, and you don't have a single doctor. <laughs> Good point. Boy, it's an excellent point. When he said that we need a healer, I was like, "BS!" Because <laughs> you have everybody in your whole civilization there on that put on that ship. <laughs> there's got to be a, a doctor somewhere. There has to be a doctor, and, and you know, there's no damage on the ship. So he says no. that the Cardassians attacked him, and the commander was da- hurt, uh, injured in some way. But I don't see how you could damage something that big. <laughs> Well, you think that the only damage you get to is from the outside. So, so yeah, I mean, put your bridge in the middle of that thing, and you will be fine, no matter right. what, unless you plunge it into a sun. Um, <laughs> right. Or if you fly down the trench, because there is a <laughs> trench here. You fly down the trench. And, and find the exhaust a, port? You shoot a torpedo right in the exhaust port. <laughs> Those are the only two ways to hurt that thing. Probably. Probably. That thing's just massive. Yeah, I had a, a really hard time buying the whole premise that that the Cardassians did some sort of major damage to this and were running away and that they couldn't help themselves and had to ask for help on the station. Yeah, I agree. I agree, kind of, but it's it, it's a cool-looking ship. Just Yeah, and that's the only time we see it. Yeah. Well, no, well don't you see the back of it at the end? I can't remember. Well, it's, it's a second issue. Right. Yeah, you're right. I think that's the only time in this issue you see it. But how did they not see this this thing cruising up behind the Cardassian ship and firing on it? <laughs> exactly. That's what I don't understand. There must have been some uh, some sensor like huge blip. Right. There's a small moon chasing that Cardassian <laughs> ship, but but we don't see any ships. <laughs> Just that's like... no moon. <laughs> da da da. Yeah. Uh, so, so so what about the Ver- Verahats or whatever? The aliens. Yeah, is that supposed to be it? Yeah, Verahat? I thought that that was a D. So. Oh, is it a Vera dot? 
No, I thought it was Vard Hot. Vord Hot. V O R D Hot. Okay. H O T. That that's the way I thought it was. So well, for well, for you most... not. Oh, I was just going to describe the yeah. font real quick. The the okay, font fine. of these aliens is very hard to read. Very hard. Um, it's all different um, style, so it's really hard to know what's an A and what's a D, and yeah. uh, that's why it, I thought it was Vord Hot. Yeah, and their sentence structure is not necessarily good anyway. So between the font and the odd order of words, it's not the easiest thing to read. Right. So, so anyways, you thought it was V-A-R-D-H-A-T? V-O-R-D. Oh, V-O-R. Okay. That's what I thought. Okay. Cool. Well, they look like... Um, they're very odd. They're a very odd design. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I may, Please. they they kind of look like... Um, well, okay. So the first thing I thought of when I saw them, because they're very deep uh, black, uh, I the first thing I thought was like like black onyx. And when I was ten years old, my uh, my parents brought back a onyx chess set from Mexico, and um, and the and the, the, some of the chess pieces are black, and that and the blackness of the onyx. Reminds me a little bit of these guys, some of the chess pieces. Uh, so that's an obscure thing for me to think of. But uh, <laughs> it, also, they kind of look like amoebas or something. Like you stuffed an amoeba, a flexible amoeba, kind of in uh, a humanoid suit. And right. then the head's popping out the top. And that's it also reminded me of that. Would you yeah. like to continue the list? Because they're very odd looking. Right, they're very odd looking. So they're they have two arms, two legs. So in, in that regards, they're humanoid. But it's just their heads that are just so odd. So yeah. uh, the way I was thinking of it is kind of like a like a, a not a swordfish, but those those sawfish type things that look like they have like the flat head with the little ja- jagged teeth. You know, they're not right. real teeth, but they kind of look right. like saw teeth. That right. go around the whole head of the fish, right. or snout of the fish. That's what mm-hmm. their heads look like. They're they're kind of flat. They have the little jaggedies around the side. Yeah, uh, it's like very cer- very odd. A serrated edge around the outside perimeter of their head, you know, right. going up and down. Very odd. And the only features they have are you know glowing red eyes. Right. That no at next. first, yeah, at first I thought the eyes appeared, but they're on page nine. It looks like some sort of faceplate comes down so that you can see the eyes. Um, right. Yeah, that that is a good point. So, and that's another interesting point, <sighs> especially when. Okay, I I think I'm jumping the gun a little bit. When right. we get to the next one, where we talk about the what Bashir does to heal the uh, commander. All right. Um, I have another comment coming. Yeah. Same here. So let's hold off on that. Okay. So, anyways, I kind of kept the uh, synopsis brief just because, yeah. Mine, nothing, you knew mine was going to be long and nothing was happening. And nothing was happening. <laughs> and uh, the synopsis for the second part of this, uh, this the, the second story in this issue is even briefer. Hmm. Just to give you a little tease. Tease <laughs> about the briefness. Yeah. Well, the next one's a pretty light one also. Right. Do you I have mean, any you, more? 
Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I just wanted to comment that uh, Gal Aka uh, is quite a megalomaniac. Oh yeah. Uh, he's 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 just coming in, taking over everything, and uh, and I don't like him, not one bit. You know, Gal Dukat wasn't. You know, he was an unlikable guy, but this guy, he's like a he's like a rich kid or something, some child that has to control everything. He's a jerk. Exactly. With a capital J. Or Y. J. Yes. J. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, and I've never heard the term grand goal. Is no, that... neither have I. Okay. So either it's unique to the story or we've just never really paid attention. Well... Both are possible. Well, I, I don't remember us ever leading or ever meeting the high leader of Cardassia. So if if we did in one of the episodes of DS9, I don't remember what it is. So uh, I don't know what you would call the Grand Poobah, but um, Grand Gull, hey, why not? Right. Uh, I thought Leggett, is that it? Or is Leggett well, below? That- I don't think oh, I don't. I, I know Leggett is a, is a Cardassian um, term of rank. I know that, but I don't think that's the the top guy. The top guy. But you would think if Leggett is higher than Gull, it would be Grand Leggett. Eh. Right, not know. Grand Gull. Yeah, I've never heard the term Grand Gull, and I thought they just made that up. They might have. All right. What else do you got? Um, that's really last comment is I thought uh, Cisco at the beginning when he's trying to you know stand up to the, the gull and give him to back down um, he, he threatens him so Cisco tried threatening the gull he says pers- he says he will personally take apart his escape pod and <laughs> And then he's interrupted. It's like, well, right. I, I, I want to hear the rest of that because I don't know where he's going with that. Uh, Yo, yeah. mama. Yo, mama <laughs> is so ugly. No, I, I don't get that. Well, is he going to take that escape part, pot apart and shove it where the sun doesn't shine? I assume that's what he was going to say. What's the rest? Yes, I think that was it. <laughs> they, they, that term is still in use in the 20-something century. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just, it just came off to me as I was reading it like, oh, Cisco, you're not good at this. You should just relax. <laughs> should have just decked him one and just get it over with. <laughs> exactly. Get rid of him. Right. Yeah, I thought that was funny, too. That's the last thing I have to say about that one. I'm All looking right. forward to the next one. Oh, yeah. One of my so, favorite, a descendant of one of my favorite characters from Taz. Right. So I didn't mention it on the cover, but on the cover, it's it has the title of the two uh, stories. Genesis Defined, Part 1, plus, you ready for it? Mud's Pets. Oh, Mud. Mud? That's right. That sounds familiar. Right. So everybody who... You know, bought this issue and is getting ready to read it. They all got excited because finally, here at the space station that surrounds Bajor, 
we're going to find out why Mud is suddenly Bajoran. Right? 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 Is that what you were expecting? Yeah, because in the new continuity, Mud is a female Bajoran. I thought this was going to be explain it all. No? Oh, oh, I got gotcha. you. Yes, countdown to darkness. I got gotcha. you. Mud woman. Okay, so, and that's fine. It's a bit of a stretch for you to bring that up, but okay. I just thought it was funny. Two but... totally different time periods, but okay, yes. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Yes, yes, yes. It might have been a weak joke. All right, so uh, this one is entitled Mud's Pets Part 1. Writers is Randy and Jean-Marc Loffisser. Penciler is Keith Conroy. Inker is Larry Welch. Letterer is Michael Delphine. Uh, colorist is Moose Bauman. And line editor, again, is Mark Pansia. So the story is told in a way where the, the narration is done through word boxes. And it's a, a conversation of, of somebody with a, a tribunal. Um, so that's telling the story. But then in addition to that, we're also seeing pictures and reading what they're actually saying to each other. And they don't always match up. And I'll try to explain that uh, during the synopsis, but uh, just bear with me. So, uh, the, like I said, the, the dialogue boxes are a court transcript where we're introduced to someone named Horace T. Mudd. And we find out that the T stands for Tiberius. And uh, Mr. Mudd here says that his grandfather, who happens to be Harry Fenton Mudd, was fond of the name. Obviously a reference to uh, James Tiberius Kirk. So this new Mudd has arrived at the station to uh, finish off a deal that he has with Quark. So the uh, dialogue boxes are playing it up that, oh, it's just a completely innocent transaction, whereas the actual dialogue between Cork and Mud prove that it's definitely not legal. So we find out that Quark is buying a uh, two sets of a fast-breeding animal that Mud has smuggled from the Gamma Quadrant. Uh, these little creatures are called Meeps. Um, as Mud is showing off these little meeps, he notices that one set of the little creatures have broken free and that they're loose on the ship. Uh, these two creatures were able to eat not only through the cage that they were in, but also through an ancient sarcophagus that they were being kept in. So soon the meeps have uh, gotten loose and they're reproducing faster than a tribble. And these little guys can eat through anything. And they start to actually tear the station apart. So eventually Dax, Cisco, and everybody gets uh, finds out that it's kind of all Mud's fault. And Dax speculates that the station will be destroyed within 36 hours unless they can catch Mud's little pets. And then we see Mud sheepishly saying, They're not my pets. To be continued. Yeah, they're not your pets, but they're your property, pal. <laughs> so, Horace T. Mud. Hmm. Yes. Very close to Hardcore Fenton Mud. 
but not quite there. He, he looks just like uh, Mud, doesn't he? You think so? Uh, well, he's because, bald. Well, okay, so he's bald, and, and Harry Mud was not bald, right. although his hair was thinning. Um, Harry was heavy, no toys about that, but this guy is a bowling ball. He is big. Right. Thick. He's a thick kind of guy. He looks like he's got some muscle underneath all the flab, too. But he is a big guy. Really big. Um, and not very tall, either. Um, yeah. And uh, so there are some differences, you know. And was it was Harry Mudd his uncle? Is that what it, what, what I think it was? it was his grandfather. Oh, it was his grandfather. Okay, okay. Yeah, because he said his grandfather had a... Uh, was very about fond Tiberius. of Tiberius. Tiberius. There you go. I hate that they actually had to kind of explain it there, you know, with the asterisk and say, yeah. Grandpa Harry Fenton Mudd of classic Star Trek. Yeah, it's like you really didn't have to do that, man. The object of Harry's fondness is a man, Captain James T. Kirk. Oh, God. You know, we really don't have to go that far. <laughs> and then when it talks about Tribbles, it, it does it again. This is reference to the classic series, Trouble yeah. Tribbles. I agree. I agree. You did not have to do that. Anybody reading this issue probably knows something about Star Trek. Although I will say that, um, like you, you know, you weren't as familiar with the original stuff. So maybe a younger kid in this time period might not be as familiar right. with the uh, Taz series. But come on, I think most right. people who read this would know it right off, right away. Right and, off the and like most people, they've all seen Trouble with Tribbles, and they've in their mind has merged uh, the the merchant who sells the tribbles with mud so that when you think back on it it's the same guy when in reality it's definitely not. No, that was Cyrano Jones. Right. So yeah, so and Harry Mud Harry Mud and Cyrano Jones had a lot in common character wise, but they were not the same character. They were not the same, were not the same actors at oh, all. No. So they've mixed no. them up. They But I, they, a lot they, of people they've, they've, they've mixed it up. Confused. Yeah, which I can understand that. Sure. They're, they're they're cut from similar cloth. Right. But they're not the same. They're not the same. Anyways, um, I, I to to be honest, not the biggest fan of Harry Mudd, but I liked this I liked his gift of gab in this. I, I love <laughs> I love the dialogue boxes with the tribunal where he's you know, going he's, over the top describing everything about how yes. perfectly Harmless and how great and how honorable uh, that Ferengi businessman is. Oh yes, I, I really like that. Where when in the shows when Fenton Mud would talk, it was just like, oh come on, just get it over with. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the difference is, but uh, I I liked it. Maybe because it was you're reading what he's saying and then you're actually seeing and reading what he's really doing, and right. and maybe yeah, that's exactly. what I thought was good. Yep. Just the the uh, the you know. The complete 180. Exactly. Yeah. So Th that was pretty good. Um. Yeah, I thought the um. I thought it was a little bit extreme though, when uh, all those things that were in his record were being read off, and he said it says he managed a triple torture farm on Largo Five. And it was like, oh my gosh. That... Where was that? I missed it. Uh, I think, was it Odo that was reading off all that? 
about oh, his record. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Uh, to be honest, I kind of skimmed through that because it just sucks. exactly. Well, if you read closely, some of those things go from from go from. Oh, okay, yeah, that's kind of funny. It's kind of uh, triple torturer. What? It's like <laughs> that's not very nice. I mean, that's not Lars. I mean, you go from harmless larceny or more or less harmless larceny to uh, running a triple torture farm. Oh my god! And feeding explosives to. To Endorkin hedgehogs. Hedgehogs, yeah. A protected species. <laughs> and selling the bits as chew bones to the Klingons. It's like, oh. <laughs> wow, you go out of your way. I mean, you go out of your way to uh, be kind of nasty. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I totally, uh, you know, because I don't know why, but uh, I kind of read the first couple of lines and I'm like, okay, well, they're just going to list off a bunch of stuff. I wish right. I would have kept reading. That's pretty funny. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. That's, I, that's all I have to say about this one. Oh, really? That's it? Yeah, that's it. That's really all I have to say. I mean, um, yeah, that's it. So uh, I'm going to say this here um, is about the meeps. Yeah. They, they look quite different when you first see them. Compared right. to later. Right. So what's funny, and and I think I've actually mentioned this in the past uh, when we were doing uh, maybe either a gold key or one of those early Marvel ones, but um, there was a Doctor Who comic book, um, mm-hmm. and I think it was a Tom Baker era Doctor Who, um, and in it there was a creature called Meeps. And it was called Beep the Meep. That was the, the main one. Okay. And it was a lot like this, where he, he was a little cuddly uh, thing, little blue fuzzball. And then he would get angry, and he would turn into this vicious little, you know, demon, you know, little monster type thing. Right. And I just find it funny that these little meeps are cute, cuddly, blue creatures and then we see that they transform into these vicious, acid-spitting... Nasty things. Yeah, so I just think it's funny that they're so similar. Both yeah. both called Meeps, both kind of have the same characteristic little small blue rodent things that turn nasty. So, right. just saying, maybe somebody wasn't, uh, you know... Maybe somebody whose eyes were wandering to another person's paper or something. <laughs> You're saying all maybe all of this was not as original as it should have been. Right. Yes, I can see that. So that's it. Okay. Well, let's uh, continue on to the next issue then, so we can see what happens with the Meeps and the uh, other storyline. Okay. So I get to do this one. This is issue number twenty-seven. The title of the first story within the issue is Genesis Denied Part 2. Published date is August 1995. Writer is Chris Dows and Colin Clayton. Penciler Rob Davis. Inker Jack Schneider. Letterer Michael DeLapine. Color design Moose Bauman. Computer color separations by Malibu. Associate editor Dan Shaheen. Line editor Mark Panacea. The cover features Bashir's head and upper torso prominently in the center. He is using a tricorder, looking cool and in control. 
to either side of the doctor's head is a Cardassian and a black humanoid called a Varahat lying on medical beds, separate medical beds. The issue opens where the previous one left off, with Jake, the unwitting innocent, caught between out-of-control Cardassians armed with phasers and Sisko's party that includes members of an unfamiliar alien race called the Varahat. Sisko and company are on their way to the infirmary, but the nearly insane Gull wants all the Varahat dead. Rather than using Jake as hostage as a hostage, which kind of makes sense, the Gull merely points and shoots at Jake. Oda was able to move the boy out of the way in time so that the phaser beam hits what was behind Jake, the Varahat. Unfortunately for the Cardassians, that turns out to be a bad idea, because it just gets the Varahat really angry. The Varahat slowly lower their golden staffs and point them at the Cardassians and shoot. The Cardassians are knocked to the ground by the beams, but apparently not killed by the beams. Then the Varhat move in and start whacking the Cardassians with their canes, with their staffs that they've ceased to use as energy weapons, directed energy weapons, and now are using them as basically clubs. Sisko is able to stop them, but basically they're able to kill all the Cardassians except for the Gull. However, the Gull is extremely uh, damaged. So, Odo steps in and demands the Varahat's staff weapons as long as they are on the station. At first, they refuse, but Sisko makes a persuasive argument and they hand them over. The Cardassian Gull survives the attack, and Dr. Bashir diagnoses that he has cell damage around his wound and it is spreading outward. Sisko asks Julian if he can save him and the doctor asks which medical miracle does he want him to perform first? Save the Varahat commander or save the Cardassian gull? Because quite frankly, commander, he says, if either one of them dies, we're in trouble. Later in the infirmary, the Varahat are talked into leaving their ill comrade in the same room as the ill Cardassian. Even an unconscious Cardassian is a threat as far as the Varahat are concerned. Dr. Bashir can now start his work to save them both. He stops the Cardassian's progressing tissue destruction by using a biogenic field on him. It should heal him, but is only stopping further damage. They hit on the idea to use cells from Garak to, in, to be introduced into the gull's wounded area to stop the destruction and begins to replace lost tissue. With the Cardassian stabilized, the good doctor turns his attention to the Varahat called the Controller. Through experimentation, Julian is able to find a way to cut the protective suit off of the Controller, but without hurting him inside. The Varahat, at first, won't let... The other Varahat, outside of the operating room, at first won't let Garak into the same room as their wounded Controller, but Julian gets very angry and gives them a good talking to. Garak comes in, but after testing his cells, Julian determines that they will not help the Gull. After checking DNA patterns of both of his patients, he realizes their DNA patterns are extremely close to one another, 
At some point in the past, they may have had the same common ancestor race from which they both sprung from. Though there are unknowns, and there are risks, Bashir thinks the two enemies' tissue can save each other's lives. Very handy. Later, the Varahat controller recovers enough to travel and is being back to their ship. The Varahat thanks Sisko and his healer. They make preparations to depart the station. In the infirmary, the gull is awake and sees a warning light come on. He thinks it's his Kardashian ships preparing to fire on the Varahat ship. He demands to be allowed to contact his ships to give the order himself. The doctor begins to open up a channel to the Cardassian ships, but takes the time to mention how he will be transmitting the Gull's treatment details to Starfleet on an open channel. He supposes anyone who is listening can hear the fascinating details of how he was able to use tissue from a Varahat to cure the Gull, and in return use the Gull's tissue to cure the Varahat. It's all quite fascinating. Over the just open channel, the gull looks worried and gives orders to let the Varahat ship go. The gull dresses and begins to transport to his ship. Bashir reminds the gull that he should keep in mind how they saved his life in future dealings with Deep Space Nine, particularly if he becomes the Grand Gull. Akaha! The end. Fascinating stuff. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so Garak, who is at least the same species, his DNA is not going to help the, the, the potentially new Grand Gull. However, right. a Varahat, who supposedly has a common ancestor somewhere in the far distant past, the Varahat that looks nothing like a Cardassian, he's going to have a close enough match where Garak didn't, to save the gull. Right. Makes perfect sense. Doesn't it, though? We're not geneticists, so we can't really... We're not. And, you know, Bashir's had a lot more training than we have. However, I'm just (laughs) saying, it doesn't seem to make sense. It makes no sense. But that is handy. How the two enemies end up helping, saving each other's lives. Right. And, you know, I I don't want to go into this too much, but just the idea that um, you're going to replace every cell, every DNA strand, you're going to repair, you know, several sequences within each each strand of DNA in a person's body is, you know, it, you know, this is science fiction, supposed to be a future, we're able to do stuff like that, but just don't see how it's possible. Yeah. And so quickly. The, right. the treatment doesn't take very long. A hypo. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I could understand. I, I would have liked it better if they would have beamed him or something. You know, in, within the transporter buffer, you're yeah. re- recreating every molecule in their body anyway. So, you're, you somehow add these, you know, extra sequences or missing pieces of his DNA that would have made more sense to me kind of like what they did with War Spine or whatever is that how they did it? I think so mm. I know that they did Pulaski she 
she became old and they had to beam her young again. <laughs> yeah, that's a... Uh, I don't want to get into transporter technology too much, but if you got the old patterns for people, don't you think you could do that all the time? Yeah, well, whatever. Right. I, I did like that Marvel issue, I think it was, that uh, kind of dealt with that, where... Uh, do you remember it when uh, Scotty ended up going to a planet where everybody had to wear a headband um, or something because every time you were transported you were basically reset to whatever whatever your DNA was the, the first time you wore that headband and the headband was keeping you from losing your memories and if you took it off and got beamed you would basically be reset 100% to whatever you were that first time do you remember well, that one? Um, not too well but, I think it was one of the later Marvel ones when we were doing yeah. our uh, the the post Star Trek the movie uh, era, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we talked about it then. That why doesn't everybody do that? Just um, you know, take a few years off every time you beam. <laughs> exactly, it's immortality. Right. But you know, because it's not possible, and you know. This story really kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and I I might not have enjoyed it as much as other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I didn't enjoy it too much, so there's at least two of us. (laughs) For different reasons. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, really, my only comment on this issue is I still don't understand what he did for the, uh, the alien. Just cut him out of the suit. I agree. That I have the same question because he's because you saw him using the laser scalpel mm-hmm. that cut just far enough to open the suit, but but di- didn't cut into the the controller himself. Right. And then and then he said like, okay, he's out of the suit, and it's like I look at him and it's like, hmm, he looks the same. Right. <laughs> it's like, hmm. Was that a transparent suit or something? Because I don't see how he looks any different from when he was in the suit. Right. Yeah, they make a big deal about him cutting away the the mask, and then all of a sudden, you know, I guess he has to be really fast, and he just basically rips it down the down the, the sternum, right. hoping that he's not cutting into his flesh, and it kind of pulls away, I guess, because there's like a little pool of black behind him at that point, and he's like, yeah. oh, that was cutting it close. And yeah, I'm with you. And then, like the light, next panel, what? you it, see him, right? Yeah. Nope. Uh, I, I just know. find it hard to believe nobody on that ship can cut off a suit. <laughs> <laughs> Again, yes, exactly. A ship that large with no doctor and nobody that knows how to take a suit off. Amazing. But what's funny is that I have been thinking a lot, and this is going to sound weird that I've been thinking a lot about it, but it's true about um, brain surgery. And okay. how you have to, you know, those doctors have to cut through the skull just enough so that you get through the skull, but not oh, hit yeah. the, you know, the 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 brain or the yeah. the, the membrane that surrounds yeah. the brain. Yep. And you're and you're saying cutting through the through the skull, the heart through the skull, skull. Right. right? Exactly. With that with that saw, that right. when you look at the right. saw, it looks like something you would get at Home Depot. Ah. You know, exactly. and, and that they're yeah, you so good. You hook it up to your air compressor, and it's like, okay, don't unplug that. Exactly. Yeah. You know. That's what it looks like. It does look like that. And, uh, I mean, that's just, that, that to me, 
is amazing. And then I thought it was, you know, like I said, I've been thinking about that for a couple of weeks now. And then, and then this, and he's kind of talking about the same thing, how he's having to just barely cut through that um, suit until mm-hmm. he can get to the the fleshy part. Right. So, uh, and then he kind of ruins it by just running it down the, the sternum really quick and hoping for the best. <laughs> you know, just like, <laughs> yeah. all right, you lost me there. But yeah, still, I mean, that, that's at least they kind of talked about it at the beginning that that is what he would have to do. Well, he, you know, he is G- Doctor Julian Bashir. He's 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 amazing, but not as amazing as the amazing Odo, who is not only Mister Fantastic, but he is also the Flash. <laughs> Why? Well, and that whole and, and actually the way they do the artwork, I think I think you want to talk about it. I know I want to talk about it. There's the uh, scenes at the beginning of the book where a lot of things are happening quickly. So they have a lot of really they have a they have a panel that's actually broken up into like I don't know maybe five sub panels that are very long and thin. Mm-hmm. As they're showing uh, actions happening that are happening very fast. So there's Jake who's about to get killed. You know the the you can see the laser beam coming out of the phaser, and then the next quick little vertical cut shows Odo's head as he's coming in and moving Jake out of the way. And so I like the style, how they're getting across to the reader, hey, this is all moving real fast, and this is like a $6 million man slowdown kind of thing. Right. And um, and I like the style. It's just that, geez, Odo, you are, <laughs> you are the Flash. <laughs> right. I, I did like that. I, I agree with you. But I was really confused where Cisco goes. Yeah, exactly. in, in the first two right. panels, Cisco's shown standing next to Jake. Yep. The third panel, Cisco's gone, and then the fourth panel shows the beam almost hitting Jake's face and Odo knocking him, you know, just to the side. Right. But it's almost, and it's almost like one of the the Verahat are is moving in front of Cisco, and like moving right. him backwards. Maybe, but you think you would still see like a poke of red or something yeah, uh, showing that he's still behind there. I, I'm, I'm just saying what I'm interpreting from what they're right. showing us. Right. Because you do see the one where the ver- one Verahat appears to be forward of where Cisco is, and he's moving to the left. Right. Yep. His left. That, that was the only thing I could come up with, too, but it just looks yeah. weird. It does look weird. Because you would think if anybody would be moving fast to to do something about Jake, it would be uh, his father. But right, he's not. And, he's not the Flash. So and that's fast because because what what's what really shows how fast we're talking about is that it shows the phaser shows the light coming out of the phaser. That's right. Which would move at the speed of speed of, of light. Speed of light, right? Hello. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's 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 weird. Yeah, well, you know, I guess Odo's abilities match whatever is needed of him. He could turn into a backpack, or a vase, or a brooch, or a pterodactyl. It's amazing. <laughs> or a mosquito. Or a mosquito, or the Flash. Yes. In this case, so. Yes, the Flash is is a pretty amazing one. It is. I never knew he could do that, but hey. I really liked how the Varahat took care of business with the Cardassians. Just wail on them. them. Well, yeah, it blasted them first, and then started wailing on them with those uh, golden staffs. 
Right. Until the point that the one scene after the beating and the beatings will commence, you could see all the purple blood dripping out of the uh, <laughs> the, the, the the top part of those uh, three of the Varahats um, staffs. Oh wow! I didn't notice that at first. Yeah, kind of a purple, almost a little bit towards pink kind right. of uh, blood dripping off. They're bad dudes. They're bad dudes. They're taking care of business. They don't like Cardassians. The Cardassians and... did this to their controller in their Hulk ship, so they're not they're not sticking around with anything. I mean, they're not going to take anything. So, so this this shows that they're phaser proof. So how did they well, hurt the controller again? Well, so I can only assume, because they're phaser-proof, um, that either the Cardassians don't know how to set it on kill, which I doubt, or they've got those suits they talked about, that they couldn't get the um, the protective suit, they couldn't get the controller out of. Right. I, I'm assuming that those protective suits are what kept them from getting fried by the phaser. Right. So you're saying because the captain is wearing a phaser-proof suit... Oh, not the captain, because the captain's the controller guy, right? Uh, yeah, the controller. So he was wearing a suit. That's that's what right. they're having to try to get off of him, right? Exactly. The yep. phaser-proof suit. The phaser-proof suit. So how did how did the Cardassians hurt a guy who's wearing a phaser-proof suit? Well, okay, I I thought they shot him from a ship. Okay. Oh, and 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 I will readily admit to be not being a hundred percent clear. So maybe a barrel. On the events that led up to this. A barrel but, must have fallen off on and hit him in the spine or something. <laughs> is this? Are we going back to Worf again? Yes. Okay. Um, I, I I assume he got hurt on, with ship's damage. You know right. when they got attacked, uh, the ship got attacked. But I don't right. know. Right. But you would think that if you're wearing a phaser-proof suit, you know. Well, any type uh, yeah. of physical damage will also roll off fairly easily. Well, don't you realize that directed energy is a totally different situation than a falling barrel? True. So, so what the Cardassians no should have done is throw the phasers at them <laughs> instead of shooting them. Probably, although it probably would have just bounced off them harmlessly. But yeah, they could try it. The phasers didn't work, so. Mm. All right. Uh, I don't have anything else to say about yeah. this. Um, I thought uh, Bashir's orange-red operating outfit looks like it's probably quite practical when you're going to do an operation, but it does not look cool at all. <laughs> Way low on the cool factor, Bashir. Just got to say that, guy. Well, it's not his fault. That's the outfit that Pulaski wore when she was giving Picard his his heart transplant. So that may be. I'm just saying though, and it looks very practical. You know, it keeps your hair back, so so hair doesn't fall into the open wound and stuff. I'm just saying, not very cool. <laughs> no, it looks it looks ridiculous, and it doesn't. Yeah. You know, they they say they have a little stasis field or whatever, so mm-hmm. they don't. They don't need uh, any type of mouth face covering. Thing. Yeah, but you do have to wear that ridiculous out body covering outfit. Yes. <laughs> okay. Right. And other than that, I have nada. In that case, let's uh, find out what's happening with these meeps, shall we? Who look like cuddly little guys. Actually, in the comic, in the in the the first issue where we were introduced to them, they look. They look familiar to me. Um, but what they turn into soon, 
does not look familiar to me. They're nasty. Okay, let's get going. Okay, so the trial of Horace T. Mudd continues as Mr. Mudd recounts what happened on the station after Cisco and his team fully realized the ramifications of the Meep infestation. Dax says if they can't stop Mudd's pets, they will have to abandon the station in 36 hours. So, they're working together, they hit on the idea of using Quark's recently acquired System K robots that hunt and control pests. So they're going to take those and uh, sick them on the Meeps. And they're hoping they'll be able to keep the Meeps busy enough that they'll give them more time to figure out a better plan. Because, quite frankly, these, these little robots... These uh, System K robots are relatively small, metallic, and so far it's looking like the Meeps like to chew on metallic things. So, um, so uh, the story goes on. Their use of the System K robots is not successful, as aggressive Meeps in increasing numbers just overwhelm the robots and chew them up and spit them out. Meanwhile, Dr. Bashir and Dax are trying to figure out the biology of the Meeps so they can find a weakness. They figure if they can alter the Meep's biology enough to remove their ability to not be dissolved by their own corrosive, corrosive acid saliva, their own salivary glands would turn them into puddles of goo. Jillian and Dax start to put their plan into motion. They will devise an airborne agent that will be carried to the Meep's via the ventilation system. The Meeps will change and drown in their own acidic saliva. They put the plan into effect, just as Kira, Odo, Quark, and Mud are about to be eaten by a nasty Meep gang. The Meeps spontaneously turn to goo, and the day is saved. Huzzah! Mud tells the judge, There you have it, Your Honor. My innocence could not be clearer. The judge finds him guilty, of course, and sentences he and Quark to clean up all the Meep guts goo in the station. Odo looks on as the two sad sack con men are cleaning up huge amounts of mess. All Mud can do is issue a heavy sigh. The end. So they got what they deserved. They got what they deserved, yes. Considering they almost destroyed the station... It really was not intentional. Um, the Meeps look like cute little guys when uh, Mud first takes them out of their, their crates, but uh, by the time you see them in this issue, they have they have changed into really nasty-looking little critters. Right. I mean, they're, they're, their noses are elongated, they've got all these like teeth and stuff going every which way, and they are fast, and they shoot that acid at things... And uh, they're very deadly. Yes. You would not want to mess with them. No. No. They remind me of, like, creatures that you would see Jim Henson make for, like, ah. uh, like Dark Crystal or something like that. Yes, exactly. Uh, what were those th- those guys that kind of looked like vultures? The uh, um, I don't remember their names. I don't know either. But they do kind of remind me of those guys. Right. Yeah. So, anyways, um, my only comment on this issue is 
the whole airborne agent that's going to oh, revert God. them or kill their immunity to their own acid saliva. Right. Yep. So they didn't do any tests to make sure whatever the nah, airborne agent doesn't, you know, no, melt off it. somebody's eyeballs or something. Nope. Nope. <laughs> and they're able to, to whip that up in, like, minutes. Right. And then, and I didn't mention this, but they say they're going to use the ship's replicators to create more of it quickly and get it pumped throughout the air systems, the vents and stuff. Right. And it's like... You know, I know this is a nice, light little episode. A nice, little light little story, you know. Nobody has to get tweaked out about things. It's for humor. Mm-hmm. But um, that is really far-fetched. You are really asking us to swallow an awful lot. But there you right. go. Yep. Yep, so that was that was my only comment. Uh, I didn't like this second half as much as I liked the first half. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's quite as witty with the, you know, the banter of of mud, you know, talking to the the court, but uh, but oh well, I mean, it is what it is. It is indeed. Um, kind of interesting how they not only reused. You mentioned the Meeps being at least by name and maybe a few other characteristics retreads of something from a Doctor Who story, mm-hmm. but also they just struck me as retreads of um, of facehuggers on Alien. With the oh, acid blood and things. With the exactly. Yeah. Oh, we're on a space station. You know, we've you know we're in the icy vacuum of space, and the only thing holding in pressure and air and heat is uh, you know, the metal shell of the uh, space station. Right. And, uh, and you're introducing these things that spit acid that just eat, eat right through the floor. It's like, ooh. Right, and then they actually say that you know, these little guys would would be just fine in vacuum, so. Kind of like, oh, right. Kind of like the alien aliens are exactly. also okay in vacuum. Good point. Yes. Yep, I was thinking that too. Yep. Nothing new beneath heaven and earth. Just recycling stuff. Existing ideas. But, All right, uh, so uh, we're not going to do any expanded universe this week because uh, this was the summer and Deep Space Nine was in between seasons, so no new mm-hmm. new episodes. Alright, so next week we'll be back, episode 140, and we'll do original series, DC Comics, issues 76 through 78. There you go. Sounds getting, good. Clo- getting close to that 80, 80th issue, the final issue. Ah. Ah. I know, sad, right? I'm going to miss an, it. End of an era. End of an era. Alright then, well, we'll uh, let you guys go, and we'll talk to you next week. See you next time, everybody, on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic second name book review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here